0: This is the second part of a series called The Pessimist's Guide to the Universe, which has to be the weirdest series that a church would ever start the year out with on a midweek service. It might take a backseat to the year we were doing prayer and fasting for three weeks, and we started with a series called Strong Meat. It might take us a backseat to that. But The Pessimist's Guide to the Universe, a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you can find this out from the dictionary. You don't need the Bible, but a pessimist is a person who emphasizes the negative side of any situation, a person who habitually anticipates the worst. A pessimist is a person who believes that the entire world just naturally bends toward evil and pain and suffering, and a pessimist is a person who just They simply tend to be gloomy all the time. And you've heard the expressions. The optimist says the glass is half uh, full, and the pessimist sees the glass as half empty. And most pessimists would say, I'm a realist. Life does hand us the negative. Life does deal us the worst. The world is filled with evil and pain and suffering, and there truly is cause to be gloomy sometime. So I'm not a pessimist, I'm just a realist. Now with all that he had going for him, you would think that King Solomon would have very little reason to be a pessimist because he was the son of King David. He was the third king of Israel. He was the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. And most of us would say, I'd be happy for the rest of my life if I was the wisest and wealthiest person who ever lived. But you see, Solomon had too many perks and too many privileges for his own good. And he used those perks and privileges to experiment with the things of the world. And when he did, even the blessings that God had given him ended up becoming a curse to him. See, the sad thing about Solomon was he had enough wealth to afford anything he desired. And he had just enough wisdom to figure out how to experience anything in life that he wanted to experience. And that's what got him in trouble. And that's what led to his failure. And you all know people just like that. I know them. I've got a long litany of people like that over 40 years of ministry. It's a, a tragic tale and it's all too common. And so now as he pens this book, Solomon is old and he's disillusioned by life itself. He has bought everything he desired. He has tried anything he wanted. He has always been looking just for something to satisfy, but he has ended up with nothing that could actually fill his heart. So it's one of the themes of Ecclesiastes. He is empty. He has no purpose, only pleasure. He has no peace, only worry. He has no real riches, just scads of money. He has no friends, just a lot of followers in his kingdom. He has no satisfaction, just a list of accomplishments. No joy, only sorrow. No love, only longing. No fulfillment, only frustration. And Solomon, worst of all, has no God. He just has religion. He is empty. Because his life is very, very busy, but no longer blessed. And we'll pick up one last thing from last week. Solomon continually uses the word hevel. Everyone say hevel. Hevel is translated in the King James Version as vanity, 38 times in just 12 chapters. And our English word vanity refers to a lack of real value, hollowness, worthlessness, And so many of the modern translations of scripture translate Hevel as meaningless. But when they translate it as meaningless, they lose a little bit of the Hebrew metaphor, a little bit of the flavor of the expression because Hevel actually means vapor or fog or smoke. So Solomon isn't saying life is meaningless, that it has no meaning. He's saying that the meaning of life is like smoke or fog or vapor. There's meaning there, but it's never clear. It's like smoke. It's undefinable. It's just kind of nebulous sometimes. It's unreliable. It looks solid, but you go to grab it, and then it shifts and changes and slips through your fingers. Life is like smoke, it's unpredictable. One shape and then as you're looking at it, it morphs into another shape. Life is uncertain, sometimes it just blows away. You're left holding nothing, all for no reason. Life is like smoke, vapor, fog. If you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see clearly. And it's like chasing after the wind, that's a phrase he likes you never really seem to catch it. So Solomon's point is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. Everything is vapor and fog and smoke. And we pick it up in chapter three, where he has a, a momentary uh, paragraph that's very profound here. One of the most familiar pieces in Ecclesiastes, maybe even in the entire Old Testament. He says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep. And a time to laugh. A time to mourn. And a time to dance. A time to cast away stones. And a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace. And a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to get. And a time to lose. A time to keep. And a time to cast away. A time to rend. And a time to sow. A time to keep silence. And a time to speak. A time to love. And a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. It's one of the most poetic paragraphs of the entire Old Testament. To everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Because here's what every one of us know about life, and here's what Solomon's trying to tell us as well seasons change in life, seasons change. And Solomon illustrates the truth that seasons are constantly changing by juxtaposing 14 pairs of opposites. Time to build, time to tear down, time to love, time to hate, time of war, time of peace, 14 pairs of opposites. You see in life, the tide comes in and then it recedes and the sun rises and brings us light and then the sun sets and it brings darkness. Drought bakes the ground, but then it's followed by rain and abundance, maybe even flash floods. We swelter under the heat of the summer sun and complain about it. But before too long, we are clothing ourselves against the penetrating cold of a winter storm, and we complain about that too. Prosperity brings abundant opportunity and and great rewards, but then, Prosperity disappears because something shifted and the business climate receded and it's all different. Seasons change. The guns of war are followed by the stillness of peace and and then to bring it closer to home, smiles give way to tears. And joy, it's followed by sorrow. And jubilation, excitement, celebration gives way to tragedy. Acquaintances become friends, and sometimes close friends become enemies. Sinners become saints, and sometimes saints become sinners. And the wheel of life just continues to turn, and the seasons continue to change. And all human emotions that we are capable of feeling, they appear and then they disappear and then they appear once more because seasons change, brothers and sisters. The only thing constant in your life is change. Now, human beings, we're pretty smart. God created us with great intelligence and we have mastered many things in this world. But some elements of my existence and your existence, they are simply far beyond our control. We cannot evade time because God is the one who set the clock of the universe in motion, and it just keeps ticking. Is there anybody old enough in this room to know that time passes more swiftly than you want it to? Isn't that the truth? We can't evade time. God set the clock of the universe. And we can't escape death either because God is the one who determines the moment of our passing. So you can't evade time and you can't escape death. And there's one more thing Solomon talks about. You can't elude change because God is the one who ordains each and every season of our lives. There are some people who try to lock in to a momentary position or they try to lock into a momentary season in their life and God changes the season. He allows things to move and things to change and things to leave and things to come and and, and they just get so frustrated because they built their hopes and their dreams and their happiness on that season but seasons change. Our lives, everybody's life in here You may be on top of the mountain right now. You may be in the deepest, darkest, lowest valley of your life. But here's what I know. Every one of our lives contain a mixture of good and bad and joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain. Every one of us experience peace and struggle and confidence and doubt, excitement and boredom. Every one of us. Every one of us experience Seasons of tranquility and moments of anxiety and we all experience achievements and disillusionments and health and sickness and life and death. And there's not a bit of sense of being ashamed or embarrassed or despondent about the seasons of life because seasons come and seasons go and there's not one thing you can do about it. Solomon says, in this life, nothing stays the same for very long. And so as God's people, as God's children, we've got to learn to accept the ebb and the flow of God's design. And the problem is, some seasons are really, really easy to negotiate because they're happy and they're fulfilling. But other seasons are very difficult and lonely. And we may not understand at all what God is doing. And the thing about God is he knows but he seldom tells, and so it's hard. But here's the thing, in the hard times, when it seems that our prayers are unanswered and our hopes are frustrated, we've got to learn to trust God and humbly submit to his will. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Seasons change. Somebody say, seasons change. The psalmist said it. That good man, that blessed man, he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. But watch this. He bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. When you have a season that God ordains fruit to come from your life, that's a blessed season. That's a joyful season. That's a happy season. But you know what? If you cut down the tree in a bad season, you never have a chance to have another fruitful season. If you pick up the tree and dig it up and remove it from the rivers of water, that tree will never bear fruit again And so it's so important that we love the fruitful seasons and we pray for the fruitful seasons, but when it's a season and it seems a little dark and dreary and it seems like it's just kind of plateaued and not much is happening, it's so important to still be that blessed is the man. It's still important to be that man or that woman that just stays faithful. If you want the New Testament version, Paul said it in Galatians, and let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. You know, Paul wrote about that. He said, you know, don't be deceived. God is not mocked because whatever you sow, you're going to reap. 99% of sermons cast that in the negative. You better be careful, young people. You better be careful, saints of God, because if you sow sin, if you sow evil, you're going to reap a harvest, you're going to reap the whirlwind, and we almost always talk about that in the negative, but here, thankfully, Paul spins it to the positive, because whatever you sow, you're going to reap. There are faithful prayer warriors in this church, and they've sowed the seeds of prayer for decades and let me tell you God will not be a debtor to anybody on this planet if he made a promise he's going to carry it out so whatever you sow you're going to reap you you sow faithfulness you're going to reap a harvest you sow prayer and fasting you're going to reap a harvest you sow all of those wonderful things keeping the commandments of God and living a life for him you will reap And so Paul says, don't be weary in well-doing because there's coming a due season. This season may not be your season. This season might be your dry season. This season might be your cold season. This season might be your difficult, arduous, sad season. But there's coming a due season for you, and if you'll just keep doing well, and if you'll just keep sowing, and if you'll just keep praying, there's a due season coming for you if you just keep faithful, if you just keep sowing, you will reap if you don't faint. Somebody maybe needs that simple little word from the pen of Paul tonight. Don't faint. Don't sit down. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Just keep sowing. Keep praying. Stay faithful. Keep living this because there's coming a due season for you. And you will reap if you don't faint. During the Nazi occupation of Holland in World War II, the Ten Boom family risked their own safety by hiding Jews in their house. But then on February the 28th, 1944, their home was raided by the Nazis and Corey Ten Boom, her father and her sister were arrested because they'd put Jews in that hiding place and they were sent to a concentration camp. Some 30 people were arrested Corey, her father Kaspar, her sister Betsy, the three of them were sent to a concentration camp. Her dad and her sister died, but Corey survived. And in 1975, her story was made into a very moving film called The Hiding Place. For many years, Corey Ten Boom traveled the world. And she shared those experiences. As she would tell her story of atrocities at the hands of the Nazis in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Corey would often hold up the backside of a piece of embroidery. And as she spoke, she would hold it up and people would look at it. Hundreds of tangled threads just hanging in a mess. And many wondered if this precious little old lady was actually mistakenly holding up the wrong side of the embroidery by mistake. But then at a point in her testimony, Corrie would smile and flip that cloth over and reveal an elaborately embroidered crown on the other side. And that piece of stitching still hangs In the dining room of the Ten Boom Museum in Harlem, Holland. But in every time she gave her testimony, as Corey would first show that tangled mess of threads all matted together, going every which way, as she would turn the cloth and show that beautiful crown, Corey would always recite this poem My life is but a weaving. Between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper. And I the underside. Not till the loom is silent. And the shuttles cease to fly. Will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are just as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. My goodness, that's beautiful. That is the key to negotiating the seasons of life, to remember that right now, You can't see what God sees. You don't know what God knows. The backside of the tapestry, the backside of the embroidery, it always seems chaotic and ugly and it's a mess and you can't understand the pattern. But the master weaver, I promise you on the authority of the word of God that he has a wise purpose for the placement of each thread in your life. He really does. And so you can't see it, and you would never choose it, and you don't like it but he loves you enough that he has woven that thread through the course of your life, through the course of that tapestry. And when you finally get to heaven and God flips the canvas of your life over and you finally see his master design, you're gonna be so thankful. I'm gonna be so joyful that God took the care to weave a perfect tapestry for me. Would you lift your hands tonight because you may not be walking through a bad season, a dark season, a sad season, a difficult season, but somebody is walking through exactly that. So can I ask you to lift up your hands and your voice and just, just pray for a minute. Because there's strength in a room where the people of God are sitting. There's strength in the room where the word of God is being taught. There's strength in the room where the Holy Ghost is moving from vessel to vessel. There's strength in the room where God's spirit is just touching lives. And so I don't know where you are right now and what your tapestry seems to look like. But I know that God is doing a good job in your life. God is doing a faithful job in your life. I worship you God, I worship you Jesus, and that brothers and sisters is exactly what Solomon is talking about. Solomon says after his little profound paragraph, he says this, just a couple of verses later, God has made everything beautiful in his time. also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from beginning to the end he hath set the world in their heart that is the hebrew word olam 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 is everlasting or eternity so what solomon just said there is that god makes everything beautiful in his own time but god's timing is not our timing god's calendar is not our calendar So eventually, we can trust that we're going to know and understand why he allowed it, why he did it, why he didn't answer it that way. Eventually, we'll understand it. It will be beautiful in God's time, not always in our time. Right now, it might be ugly in our time, it might be tragic in our time. It might be a loss that hits us so hard that we just can't even comprehend and it staggers us, but we can trust God that in his time, we will know that it was beautiful. And Solomon says, also God has set eternity in the human heart. Do you understand why you just feel like there must be more to your life? Do you know why every sinner on the street, every colleague at work, every fellow student at that university, do you know why they all feel like there must be something more than this? It's because God put eternity in their heart and they can't get away from it. It's like a human defect. You've got a sense of eternity in there. That's why there's not a person that you love that they ever passed away and you didn't Say, I wish we could have had them for more time. I wish I could have had one more conversation, one final goodbye, a few more moments. Why? Because eternity is in your heart, and life is never long enough for a creature who has eternity in their heart. It's why you were made to be more than just a drug addict or an alcoholic. You were made to be more than just the average person on the street disillusioned with life or so self-satisfied that they just don't need anything they think. But when they pillow their head and they've got problems that come or sickness that appears in their life, they think there must be something more than this. It's the unspoken prayer of every al- alcoholic hungover. It's the unspoken prayer of every drug addict that's going through withdrawal. There must be something more than this. Do you want- Understand that that's because God put eternity in your heart. Eternity isn't just in the hearts of the people of God. Eternity is in every human heart. And every human being is going to spend eternity somewhere because you weren't just created for here. You were created whoo, for eternity. That's what you were created for. And so... Every person ever born yearns for something more. And sadly, most of them will spend a lifetime, waste a lifetime trying to discover it. But every moment of joy that you want to hang on to and every moment of sorrow that you wish you'd never come to and every encounter we have with birth and death, every one of those things speaks loudly to our hearts. There must be something more. I was created for something more. It was God, the master weaver, who put that sense of eternity in your heart. Why? So you would long for him. And so you would look for him because there are many things in this life that you will never understand until you give your life to him. So he put that little longing in your heart. It's not a longing for more stuff. Don't get it messed up. It's not a longing for fame or popularity. It's not a, a longing for power. Don't get it messed up. There's a longing for God in the center of your life. So what Solomon is trying to tell us is that every season comes for a reason. Every season comes for a reason. So if you'll continue to serve God consistently, no matter what's going on, there will be a lesson in every season and there will be a blessing in every season. You say, well, I don't know. I can't can't put my finger on what I'm supposed to learn or what I'm supposed to receive in this season. But I promise you there's a lesson and there's a blessing in every season. You may not see the, le- the blessing and you may not know the lesson until after you've passed through the season. But you will get there. Solomon continues, he says, I know that there's no good in them but for a man to rejoice there's, there's no good in, in what? There's, there's no good in all of these things that happen to us. There's no good in all of these random occurrences of life. There's nothing good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. In other words, you take whatever the moment has passed you and you just try to find a way to love God and do good and be faithful and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. You might remember from last week the bottom line from the wisest man who ever lived. The bottom line is, since you can't control your life, stop trying to control your life. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really have no control over all of those things. You have control, though, over one thing, You remember this? That is your attitude toward this present moment. So it's good if you stop worrying and stop complaining and just choose to enjoy the simple things in life. Choose to enjoy your family and your friends and your job and your house and your church. Choose to enjoy your relationship with God. Enjoy the life God has given you. You say, but I'm going through sadness. I'm going through loss. I'm going through sickness. I'm going through pain. Find the silver lining in that cloud. Grab onto it with all of your life. If you got one friend left out of a thousand, if you got one good night out of seven, whatever you've got that's good, just enjoy that and thank God for it. And praise God, maybe not for all things, but in all things you can praise him. It's amazing. Solomon says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever because he lives in eternity. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken away from it. You can't add to what he does, you can't take away from what he does. God doeth it, God is sovereign, he's in control. Why? That men should fear before him. Now, this is a King James tongue twister. But it's true, that which hath been is now and that which is to be hath already been and God requireth that which is past. Now here's what Solomon's saying to us. You are unique, created by God. It's a wonderful thing. You are unique. But can I just tell you, your experience here on this planet is not unique. Every once in a while, somebody comes along and they want to be a religious superstar in the apostolic church. They, nobody else has ever heard from God like they've heard from God. Nobody else has ever prayed like they prayed. Nobody else has ever worshiped like they worshiped. Nobody else has ever served God quite as well as they've served God. The Lone Ranger. They, they, they come into church. They, they come to the altar. They sprinkle pixie dust all over the pulpit and the platform, and then, then they leave, and we never see them again. They up and down, in and out, back and forth. You see, their experience isn't unique. Nobody gets a shortcut in living for God. The root word of disciple is the same as the root word for discipline. Everybody has to buckle down and just serve God. Serve him in the good times and the bad times. Serve him in the happy times and the sad times. Nobody gets a pass. Your experience is not unique. You live long enough somebody's going to walk away. You live long enough, somebody's going to wound you deeply. You live long enough, you're going to have great joy and tragic sorrow. You live long enough, you will experience some kind of loss or sickness. It's just life. You are unique, but your experience is not unique. And here's what Solomon says, this tongue twister. People lived before you, and people will live after you, and history will basically just repeat itself. What was is now, what is now will be. It's all the same. Solomon's not trying to make you lose hope. He's wanting to make you humble. He's wanting to make you into somebody that trusts that life has meaning, even when you can't make any sense out of it. Solomon wants to make you humble. Somebody who trusts God is in control when you can't even see what he's doing, but I still trust him. Solomon wants to make you into somebody that trusts that one day in eternity, when the, the master weaver flips the tapestry, he will clear away all the hevel, all the smoke and vapor and fog, and on that day we will see clearly, and we will worship God on that day, but see a strong. Faithful Christian is somebody that says, but until that day, my heart's going to go on singing. And until that day, I'm going to keep living for God faithfully. And until that day, I'm not going to foolishly accuse God. I am going to wonderfully praise God until that day. That's what Solomon's trying to tell us to do. Solomon's not the only one. Here's Paul. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then... Face to face. Now I know in part, I've got a little sense of God. I've got a little sense of how he operates. I can give everybody the pat Pentecostal answers that you give them. But God had a higher purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means nothing when you're the one at the bottom of the deep, dark valley. Well, God must have needed them more than you needed them. Oh, that's garbage. Please don't say We say trite cliches. And we think that makes it better and it doesn't make it better. Can I give you a little hint? This has nothing to do with the message and everything to do with life. If you can't think of something good to say, don't say anything. Just cry with them. Just hug them. Just pray beside them. You don't have to make a speech. Someday we're going to see Jesus face to face and one glimpse of his face I cannot promise you you will get your answer or your understanding here. But I can promise you that one glimpse of his face will make everything worthwhile that you went through. I promise, I promise, I promise. For now we see through a glass darkly. It's like we're looking into a a bad distorted mirror that's old and damaged and and, and the silvering is all messed up and we can't see a, a clear reflection. We see through a glass darkly. But then face to face. Paul says, now I know in part. I I have a little sense of God. I can give a few answers about God, but my answers are incomplete and my answers are insufficient. And my answers are cold comfort to somebody that's come through the worst in life. I only know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. In that moment, I will know God's will and his purpose and his plan just as much as God knows me now. Now we usually read this passage at weddings and that verse never does seem to fit. We see through a glass darkly. Is that because you're marrying somebody ugly and you didn't really get a good look at them? I don't know how that fits with weddings, but this verse always fits with weddings. We always read this verse last and now abide to faith, hope, charity, These three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is charity. We always end with that one. Can I tell you, there's more in that verse than a wedding verse. There's more in that verse than just a nice little platitude to give to a brand new couple as they begin their life together. Now abideth. There's an abiding sense of God's presence in the life of a spirit-filled Christian. He abides. We used to sing songs about that. He abides. He doesn't leave. He's not like a fickle friend who's there one day and gone the next. He abides. He's as close as the mention of his name in a moment of prayer. He abides. And because he abides, what he is abides. Now abideth faith, hope, And love, those three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Let me take a stab at that. When my hope is taken and when my faith is shaken, I still love God and God still loves me. The greatest of these three is love. I wish you'd lift up your hands and your voice and express your love to Him. You may feel like your hope has been taken and it's hardly worth living. You may feel like your faith has been shaken and you're not sure what to believe in. But let me tell you, if you can get a hold of your love for God, the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is my love for the Lord and His love for me. My love is fallible and frail and sometimes fickle, but His his love never gives up. His love is always there. His love is ever constant. And the Lord says, just pause, stop talking. So let's worship him for a moment. I just think we need to just just enter into his presence a little bit right now.
1: Oh I thank you Jesus
0: Oh, I worship you, God. God. I I worship you, God. I worship you, God. I'm so grateful for the apostolic church. I'm so grateful for the experience that we have. The apostle Paul, he wrote it out very clearly and succinctly so that we would know that there are times in a service when we need to just pull back and check what we are feeling because somebody else is here and they need to hear the word or they need to hear, uh, you know, a prophecy. And so Paul talked about that. He said there are times when uh, we, we shouldn't just speak endlessly in tongues. But Paul's the same guy that said, "I spoke in tongues, I speak in tongues more than you all. He loved this experience, and I do too and there are moments, especially in a Bible study service, there are moments when it's just so refreshing and so powerful for the church we 're not given a message we 're not given a prophecy we're we're not we're just worshiping God and praying to God in the spirit and there are moments in an apostolic church when when we pray in the Spirit, something cracks open, it breaks open, it lifts, it it flows in the Spirit. So, one more time, with that little bit of instruction maybe in your mind, would you lift up your voice, and if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, I'd like you to pray in the Holy Ghost. I'd like you to pray in the Spirit for a moment, together, together, We're edifying ourselves right now. That's what Paul called it because we're praying in the spirit. We draw strength from it. If you can see it, the hand of the master weaver is at work. He's he's pulling threads through and he's weaving something beautiful in your life. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Pray in the Holy Ghost is what the Bible says. Pray in the Spirit.
1: Oh,
0: yes, Jesus. I worship you. I thank you for the strength of the Holy Ghost that is in this room right now. I thank you for the river of healing virtue that is flowing right now. I thank you, God. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Let's just journey just a tiny bit further tonight. Solomon writes, he said, Moreover, I saw under the sun, he likes that phrase, here in this earth, here in our universe. Moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there in the place of judgment. And I saw the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there in the place of righteousness. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. One of the reasons life can be so difficult and disappointing, can I be honest, transparent? You can't always trust people. Good people sometimes have selfish motives and good people sometimes do bad things and good people sometimes say things that hurt you and you just have to learn to leave it with God to sort it all out because you cannot always trust people but you can always trust God. It's very familiar. Solomon says, so I returned. So I returned. That means I took a closer look. I came back around. So I returned. And I considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such As were oppressed, and they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. How's that for King James? Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not yet seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Let's untangle that. Solomon had been a wise king. But when he looked closer, he said, I returned, I considered it again. He saw all kinds of corruption in the nation that he had been leading, in the nation of Israel. He saw all kinds of corruption, saw all kinds of oppression. The innocent suffered unfairly, and the powerful, they manipulated unjustly. And anyone who could have brought comfort, most disappointing of all, they were too unconcerned to get involved. So Solomon concluded in yet another tongue twister, it would be better to be dead and it would be better yet to have never been born because then we wouldn't have to see all of this evil and go through all of this disappointment. So this is classic Solomon, old and disillusioned at the end of his life because he's tried too much. He's experimented too much. He's gone too far into the things of the world and it has broken something in him. He says again, I considered all travail and every right work and that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. He devours his own life. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. The average person will spend one third of their life at work. But when Solomon considered work, here's what he discovered. Some people are too competitive. They don't care about others. That's verse four. Some people are too lazy. They don't care about themselves. They devour their own life with their slothfulness. That's verse five. But then in verse six, he says, only a, true, only a few truly find balance in life. They have one hand full of work and the other hand full of quietness. They know how to work hard, but they know how to slow down and honor God. Your work should not be just a way of making money. Your work should be a way of making a contribution. Apostolics should be the greatest, best, most faithful, most diligent employees that their bosses have ever encountered in their career. End of story, period, full stop. Your work isn't just a way of making money. It's a way of making a contribution. And for Christians, your job should be used, yes, to support your family, but listen, also to support your ministry. You say, oh, Pastor Raymond, sorry, I'm not in ministry. If you're full of the Holy Ghost, yes, you are in ministry, for we are all able ministers of the New Testament. So you, you make a living to support your family, but you make a living so that you can give to the kingdom of God through your time and your talent and your treasure, It's like Paul instructed Timothy when he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Solomon says it again, Then I returned, I took another look, I came back around, I considered again, I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There's one alone and there's not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor. "'Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. "'Neither saith he, for whom do I labor "'and bereave my soul of good? "'This also is vanity, yea, it is a sore travail.'" Again, when Solomon looked closer, he sees many people doing life alone. No friends, no partners, no close family alone. All they do is work. There's never an end to their to-do list There's always an excuse as to why they can't be available or involved. And they would tell you if you ask them that outside factors are causing them to work so hard, but really it's just them. They're not comfortable with quietness. They never say no, but they never have enough. Their schedules are chock full, but their hearts are bone dry and empty. And Solomon says they never stop to ask the question, Who and what am I really working for? They've got no time to enjoy anything they've earned and they've really got no one to share it with. They are prioritizing possessions over people and Solomon says their lives are just hevel. Smoke, vapor, fog, that's all it is. They're giving their whole life to something, not even stopping to enjoy it, not even stopping to share it. Maybe you've heard this little saying, I really like it. Worship God, love people, use things. Worship God, love people, use things, and never get them confused. Because there's a lot of people that worship people, there's a lot of people that love things, there's a lot of people that try to use God. Don't ever get those three confused. Worship God, love people, and use things. Don't ever get those three mixed up. Let's come in for a landing tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine. Two are better than one. See, he just talked about that person that's all alone. They're working endlessly for themselves. They're working so hard, but they've got nobody to give it to, nobody to share it with. They can't even take a day off to enjoy anything. He just talked about people doing life alone alone. Now he's gonna take us here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow but woe unto him that is alone when he falleth for he doesn't have anybody else to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat but how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, if you're in a battle, two shall withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here it is, brothers and sisters. It's really simple and it's absolutely profound. Two are better than one. Together is better than alone every time. Together is better for working. Together is better for walking. Together is better for warmth. And together is better for war. We are better together. We are stronger together. We are greater together this is not your kingdom or my kingdom this is God's kingdom and he called us to be together we're better together and stronger together quite frankly you need the family of God I said you need the family of God. You may think you're a rugged individual. You may act like you don't need anybody or anything. But I tell you, the Bible declares that you need God's people in your life. The Spirit and the bride say come. It's great to have a relationship with God, but God wants you to have a relationship with His bride, with His church, with His family, with His body. We need the people of God. We need people who celebrate our victories. We need people who mourn our losses. And you know, sometimes we need people that get into our business. Hello. We need people who rejoice with us when we are strong. And we need people who pray with us when we are weak. We need people who motivate us to run this race that God has set before us. I need You need, we need the family of God. It's our support system that helps us to keep God as our top priority. The family of God is our safeguard when the devil is deceiving and the world is winning and the flesh is fighting. The family of God is our safeguard. The family of God is... And for many of us in this room, even the good people, the core people, the Wednesday night Bible study people, even in this room, there are people who know personally and intimately that the family of God sometimes is our safety net to help us get back up on our feet when we fall and turn around and keep on walking. Yes, we need the family of God. We need friends who help us survive a world that's full of sin and tragedy and pain. We need friends who celebrate us in the good times and friends who guide us through uncertain times and friends who weep with us in the bad times. We need friends who encourage us when we make mistakes and friends who listen to us when we're battling fear and friends who talk to God for us when we are too tired to pray. Friends who combat hell for us when we're too weak to fight, friends who love us unconditionally and are always there with a warm welcome back into the family of God and into the presence of God and into the church of God. We need the family of God. I'm grateful for this family. I'm grateful for God's family around the world. I have the privilege of interacting with brothers and sisters in multiple provinces and states and countries and continents and it's a wonderful privilege but you know what? I thank God for this local family of God. This is where my feet are set. This is where my anchor is tied. This is where my soul is tethered and I thank God I get to go to heaven with wonderful people like you. None of us is perfect. If you're looking for a perfect church, this ain't it keep on moving go ruin a different church because you're not perfect either but this isn't a perfect church but this is a grateful church we've been through the flood and the fire we've been through trials and tribulation but guess what devil we're still here we still love Jesus we're still living his commandments we're still obeying the word we're still worshiping God this is God's family God's family Deuteronomy 32 in an odd little scripture about one of the battles that Israel was facing. How should one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight? One can chase a thousand, but I need you because sometimes in my life, there's 10,000. Sometimes in my life, I don't have enough strength or skill or smarts to win that battle on my own. But I have confidence in God and in his people. I have confidence in God and in his word. I have confidence in God and in his spirit that if I will bind together like he said, then I can win that battle. Yes, two are better than one. Somebody say two are better than one. We'll end with this verse, already read it. Two are better than one, but three are better than two. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord, that's not quickly broken. If God is the third strand in any relationship, then the cord of that relationship is stronger. Yes, I know, you're all still stuck back in the wedding. We say that to every young couple starting out. Put God as the threefold cord in your marriage. That's not just for weddings. That's for every relationship you have. If God is in the center of that relationship, that relationship is strong and that relationship will help you and that relationship will strengthen you. But if God is not the third cord, the third strand in that relationship, that relationship's gonna weaken you, that relationship's gonna be a drag on your spirit and you're gonna have to pray a lot to overcome a lot of things with that relationship. That's why I love the family of God. I can come in here and know That we may not be perfect, but we're all trying to go the same direction. We may not all worship the same, but we all worship somehow. We may not all sing it the same, dance the same, praise the same. We may not react the same, but we are part of his family. And because God is the third chord in this threefold chord, it's a strong relationship. It strengthens me. You know the principle that whatever you want God to bless in your life, you need to put Him first in that area. If you want God to bless your finances, put Him first in your finances. If you want God to bless your friendships, put Him first in your friendships. If you want God to bless your possessions, put Him first in your possessions. If you want God to bless your career or your education, put Him first in your career or your education. If you want God to bless your life, put Him first in your life. And there's nowhere that's more important. Not your money, your career, your possessions. There's nowhere that's more important than in your relationships. Put God first in any relationship that you have. I'm finished. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I am so grateful that I get to be part of his church and live for God with brothers and sisters. Would you stand with me? Would you lift up your hands high and your voice higher? And would you just thank God for the privilege of being part of his family, having people that pray for you? They're all around you right now. Some of them have interceded for you this very week. You don't even know. You might not even know their name because they just saw your face and they prayed for you. They might not know your name. They just know you go to my church. You go to that church. You're part of the family. And so they've prayed for you this week. You don't even know. It's family. When one has a heartache, we all shed a tear. When one has a victory, we all rejoice and shout. When one gets a miracle, we all love it, even though we didn't get our miracle yet. When one prodigal comes home, we love on that family, we shout with that family, even though we're we're still with aching hearts praying for our prodigal. But it's family, we do this together. We live life together. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Could you just back up, take one deep breath of Holy Ghost-filled air, and would you just lift up a praise to God, a prayer to God, thanks to God, worship to God. You're so good to us, Jesus. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. We enter into your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. We are thankful to you and we bless your name.